Hiberno Goethe, German Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language, and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists, and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hiberno Goethe. German Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. Walter Road and willkommen to Hyperno Goethe. My guest today is writer and performer Mia Gallagher. Mia, it's great to have you here. Thanks very much. Feeling yeah. dank. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have someone in person. Yeah. 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 So maybe before we get into a, a chat, you're going to read us a piece from Shift, which is your short story collection. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah I will. So Shift was a short story collection I had out uh, about three years ago. A New Island who actually the owner is a German man, Edwin Hegel, but they published um, that collection. And I'm going to read from the title story, which is called Shift. And it's about a van driver. Well, he's a forklift driver and he finds himself on the dole um, in the 80s during the first recession that we would have matured in many years ago. So it's just a short wee piece, about a minute and a half long. And the character's name is Des. He'd been three years on the rock and roll. Sandra was up the pole again with Jason. And like every time before, nag, nag, bleeding, nag. Why don't you look at the jobs pages again, Desi? We need to get the kids their books and uniforms. There has to be something there, Desi. Part-time? Nixer? Ah, we can't survive on that welfare. Is it you don't want to look, Desi? Is it that you don't want to be a good father to your kids? Is it you're thinking you'll keep heaping the pressure on me and I'll break pressure, break fuck's sake, he thought, but anything for a quiet life. So after the midday pint, he picked up a copy of the Herald and it was the first thing he saw. Strong, experienced driver, needed for deliveries, house removals, etc. Must be willing to work late, cash in hand. Underneath, a number, Southside. He gave them a bell. No choice, he told himself, not with Sandra breathing down his neck, while in his mind, Southside was whispering, drawing him. She wouldn't be able to keep tabs on him from the other end of the city. A husky voice answered, a woman's with a touch of the foreign to it that was an unusual back in them days before all the migrants started. She asked a few questions, and that was that. Afterwards, Des would think it was lucky it was him who rang, because they might have been landed with some ignoramus who'd have walked straight into it and then maybe taken it all wrong. Near the end of the call, she asked, Are you of open mind, Mr Maguire? Funny question, but he put it down to her being foreign. Open mind, he thought. Christ, love, he wanted to say. I'm open to anything that'll put a few extra pound in me pocket and get the missus off me back. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course I am, he said, using the good voice he used at interviews. No worries there. The line went a bit funny. P&T, useless at the maintenance. So he couldn't catch what she said next. Yeah, yeah, great, no problem, he said anyway, thinking, look it, any job is better than none. It was only afterwards he copped. She'd been talking about Christo. That's lovely, Mia. Is that a story that you have a familiarity with? Did you know the Dole in the 80s and did you oh, know yeah. characters like that? Yeah, yeah, I did know the Dole in the 80s. Um, so I graduated in 1988 um, and it was right into the recession. So I remember, and I wrote a bit about it in, in an essay a few years ago for the Irish Writers' Centre, how it was just when we were like my generation were still emigrating but some of us were staying so I remember going to the Dole office on Victoria Street and there was 
everybody, like everyone our age, was queuing up and they were all musicians and the film scene was only just starting there. So, you know, emerging filmmakers are starting off filmmakers, baby filmmakers, people who are writing, people who are involved in theatre, band members. I did, there was a band called the Dixons and I think every one of them used to sign on in Victoria Street. Was so Victoria, you'd, Which one was Victoria Street? Was that over... Rat Mines Way. Yeah, South Circular Road. So um, it, it's off the South Circular Road and it was a beautiful, like it would have been yeah. an old schoolhouse or something or maybe yeah. an old poor house but, but it became the Victoria Street Dole Office. And um, yeah, so that was like, that was... Well, I think that was the first Dole office. And then I was, I lived on the north side for a while on just off the North Circular Road, Killarney Parade. And it was the Navin Road Dole office, which is where Desi goes to. So he signs on the Navin Road. Was that a new one? I don't know. It was a pretty ugly looking yoke. It was a big grey building. And there was just, the queues were so long. I must do another separate podcast series about your favourite Dole office. Yeah. Moving away uh, from your writing for the moment, maybe tell me a little bit about your German granny or your German Oma. Yeah, yeah. So my paternal grandmother was Lisa Gerhardt was her maiden name. And she came over to Ireland in the very early 1930s. She was very young. She was 18. And she came over to teach gymnastics or PE or something like that. And I think it was in a girls school in Kilkenny. But she met my grandfather, who was a dentist who'd moved from Cork to Waterford City. And they fell in love and they dated for a while or you know whatever people did not sure they used they didn't use the word date but they kind of walked out together probably and then she went back to Germany and when she came when she when she went back to Germany Hitler was just coming into power so she came back to Ireland pretty shortly after that maybe a year and a half two years after that married my grandfather and had my dad and my uncle and then basically stayed in Ireland It it must have been amazing for a young woman to come here uh, to teach gymnastics I just can't imagine there was a regular exchange it wasn't an Erasmus thing there just did even that exist in the 1930s I mean she was she came over in the 30s so certainly Dev and I think maybe the Coman Gael government before him had a policy of bringing in like the, the director of the National Museum I think was German and then there was a my dad reminded me of this man Reinhardt and he planted Massey's Forest down from the Hellfire Club so he was responsible he, he had the idea of the city forest that would be very common in Germany and he had an idea of bringing that into Ireland so there was a, definitely a conscious decision to bring in Germans now whether yeah. that was a a nationalist thing? I'm not sure. I don't know when Ardna Crusher was, but obviously they brought in, uh, I think it was Siemens, but big German firms to build it. Again, maybe maybe kind of slightly anti-Englishness after the First World War, they were happy to have Germans do the work and, and not British. Yeah, maybe it was like um, Frank Ryan, the, the communist who ended up dying in Nazi Germany, having been kind of weaponized by, by the Nazis. He would have seen the Nazi administration, even though ideologically it's really weird that a communist would have worked for them. But he would have seen them as the enemy of my enemy. So that sense of not necessarily a positive allegiance, but a negative allegiance, them are we'll, you know. So it might have been, it might have been ideological. I think with Dev, he wanted to to create a cultural distance between Anglo culture, British culture, and the new emerging culture of the the new Irish Free State as it was then. And I'd say your Oma or your granny probably wasn't aware of all that when she came over here to work. Totally not. I mean, I've seen pictures of her 
18. She's just this gorgeous young teenager, you know, who she was she was really interested in English. So she loved languages and she was a, a really brilliant English speaker. So for her, I think it was like maybe a, a bit of a gap year thing coming over, you know, brushing up on her foreign language, having a bit of fun and hey, she fell in love. <laughs> so it all worked out well for her. Do you, do you take after her, do you think? Do you look like her? Yeah, I do actually. I remember seeing that picture of her when she was 18 and I, when I was 18, because people would generally have thought I looked like my mum and Lisa was my dad's mother. You know, she was, I'm taller than she was. But um, there was something about the face that we definitely share a similarity um, around the eyes, I think. And also we, like she was really into swimming. I'm really into swimming. She loved the outdoors. She loved walking. She loved gardening. There's an awful lot of stuff like my mum wasn't a great gardener we used to slag her about having a black thumb so but Lisa was able to create this she she lived in this Georgian house in in Waterford on Parnell Street and there was a at the back it was just like you know those laneways where the they used to bring the the horses and the stables so there was no big back garden but she made like this little rose garden I mean I don't know how she did it if she dug into the the concrete so I did something similar in our back garden. I made a like a garden out of, you know, a concrete yard. So I think I, you know, my dad would have got a, a green finger from from Lisa and then I think I got it from that side of the family. Definitely not my mum. <laughs> you didn't call her uh, Granny or Oma. Sure you didn't? No. Yeah. No, we, call, we called her Lisa and I actually don't know why that was. Like we called her Lisa Mo because her sister Ava, who ended up Lisa was born in Berlin, but they moved up to Varnamunda, which was on the north coast, because my great-grandfather had TB. He was an engineer. And so they moved to the coast in order for him to... Is Varnamunda a seaside resort? Yeah, seaside yeah. town. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's You've been there? Yeah, yeah, I was there in 1977 during the Cold War. Yeah, which was a really interesting experience. Like my mum would have been very aware of how... I suppose re- repressed or frightened or paranoid people seem to be. But for us, it was just a, a seaside holiday, you know. And the, the one thing that was weird that I noticed was we lived in Ava, Ava's house. My great-grandmother was dead at this stage, but Ava, my great-aunt, was still alive. And she had a housekeeper, kind of live-in companion, Fräulein Berner. But they only had, they had like the top half of the house. And then in the bottom half of the house was a doctor, another doctor, doctor I think they were two doctors a husband and wife and of course the state would have seen this as a state-owned asset and would have said well it's too big a house for for one person or for a single household so we're going to move in a second household so I remember being finding that quite unusual that there was this family in the basement or a couple in the basement and then Ava had like the ground floor and I think there might have been a first floor and then an attic where we slept. But it was be- it was beautiful. It was sea and sunshine and windbreakers, which were very exotic. Mm. You know? Would there have been any difficulty to travel to East Germany? That's a great question. And it's something I really didn't think about. I mean, I do remember customs. I suppose the tricky thing would have been if we'd been bringing Aoife out. Yeah. So that would yeah. have been tricky. I don't know what kind of visa dad would have needed or we would have needed to, yeah. to go in. But, I mean, he had a family connection, so he there might have been some loudness or something that he could apply for. We had to be careful not to be seen to smuggle anything out. Ava gave my dad um, this beautiful camera and I think it was a Leica, absolutely gorgeous camera and I remember it was in this glossy black case, beautiful black leather case and we had to rub it down with soap and I remember him 
bashing it off like her step outside the house to get the corners really scruffy so it wouldn't look like we were smuggling it out of okay. the day-day and the Leica was that a German an old East German make yeah, I think, make I, make, yeah. yeah I think so now I don't know how if it was a Leica or if I'm just mushing that together because yeah. I have the association it was probably a, quite an exotic thing to have yeah. Uh, when he brought it back. I remember just being a bit disappointed that it was like we had to make it look a bit shit in oh, order yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> to bring it yeah. to bring it home. But the customs was a bit of an issue making sure we didn't yeah. we didn't weren't seen to be smuggling anything. And then your dad, was he brought up with some German or was German spoken much? No, actually Lisa was I mean she was a fantastic English speaker mm. and she didn't she never spoke much German. Like my dad has very rusty like tiny, tiny amounts of German. Why why do you think that was? Well, I suppose he was born in 36 and then the war uh, happened. My feeling is that Lisa wanted to assimilate. She wasn't ashamed of being German and certainly my dad and my uncle didn't grow up ashamed of being German or, oh, they were on the wrong side of the war or anything like that. She was somebody who was a joiner, like she liked joining things. She set up the Music Society in Waterford. She converted from Lutheranism to or Lutheranism to Catholicism. And she was like an A1 Catholic, like she'd go to seven o'clock mass every day. And like my mum used to go like she wasn't even born a Catholic and she's going to mass like every morning. But she was somebody who I think really liked joining in. She was very social and she was very proud of her English. Like she had virtually no accent. I remember my husband meeting her for the first time and thinking she was English. You know, she didn't sound, she certainly didn't sound German. Yeah. Yeah. With a bit of Cork, because my grandfather was from Cork, so there's maybe a wee bit of Cork in there as well. Then when it comes to your own creative life and stuff, do you think that some of the German background bleeds into your, your creativity? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think we were all aware, and maybe me more than my siblings, but we were all aware we were a little bit different. You know, I was born in the late 60s. So in the mid 70s, Ireland was very monocultural. If you were a little bit different, you know, it wasn't like now where, you know, like our next door neighbours are Czech and Canadian and, you know, there's the Italians two doors down. It wasn't like that. So if you had any kind of ethnicity that was different to being just, you know, straight like Irish for generations. Well, it was something I was very aware of. And because my dad was proud of being German, I felt quite proud that I had this little bit of difference. Most artists, I think, occupy a place maybe a little bit on the outside. Not every artist does, but it's a position to be able to kind of observe and process and communicate and translate what my experience is, I need to be a bit on the outside. So being of a slightly other ethnicity, I think, helped me become an artist in some way. Anytime I'm in mainland Europe, I feel a real connection. Like I really feel I'm delighted to be on mainland Europe. And it's not a sense of like, oh, it's completely exotic. I actually feel part of me is coming home. So it's like I do feel a sort of an identity that's kind of hovering you know, I feel very connected to being Irish, but I also feel very connected to being somebody with roots on the on the mainland continent. So did you do German at school as a school subject? No, 
Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't. Like you had to make all these Hobson's choices. So I think I couldn't have done art and German or I couldn't have done maybe history and German. Yeah, yeah. And I did French, went to a very interesting primary school where there was like a real old school headmaster with the cape and the mortarboard and everything. Where, where was that? Sanford National, which was oh, yeah. a proddy school. Yeah. So my Protestant roots keep pulling back, me back. Yeah. yeah. We did f- French and Latin in fifth and sixth class in primary school. So there was no German, but he, he was really really keen on on students learning other languages than English and Irish. So then in school, in secondary school, I kept up the French. I did Latin for a bit and then I couldn't do German as well. So I only learned German in situ when I went to au pair after leaving school. So in 1984, I au paired in Freiburg for about six months and then I travelled around for two months after that. And did you deliberately want to learn German? Yeah, I, it was one of those things. I don't know, like, I don't know to what extent I deliberately wanted anything at that age. My mum had travelled around a lot after she left school but and before she started university. So she thought it would be great for me to have that experience of travelling and not necessarily being at home. Like, and she'd had fun. So it seemed like, oh yeah, why not? Why not do it? I'm like, I could have, maybe could have gone to France, but I felt I can't even remember the chain of of circumstances but it just seemed that no I'd go to Germany and then I'd learn German and it actually felt at the time I was 17 I'd actually felt like I I really was going to be able to connect in with something with my history and I remember staying with Lisa for a weekend before I went and she told me lots of stuff about her being in love and she told me stuff about what it was like in those two years between coming back from from Ireland um, to Germany while the Nazis had come in and before she went back to Ireland. Stuff that she'd never have spoken to me about before. And I felt I was getting the opportunity maybe to connect with a kind of deeper family history. So it, it made sense. I, I mean, I had a horrible time au pairing. I, I hated it. I hated every <laughs> moment of it. But I met really brilliant people. I think the only reason I stayed as long as I did was because I felt there was something else going on that wasn't just the gap year. I was connecting into some sort of heritage and that felt important. And also I set myself this challenge which is mental now when I think about it of learning this language immersively in a quite a quite a tricky situation where I had responsibility for very young children and I was learning a language around them. I mean, I think it's madness. I would not recommend anybody to do that. Go off, learn the language, but don't be looking after tiny children while you're doing it. It's, t- it's just recipe for disaster. I remember one night, I remember d- waking up and I, I had dreamt in German and I was like, oh yeah, okay, now I'm in it. My, my grammar's pretty rusty at this stage and some of my pronunciation's gone off. But at the time... Because I was immersed and I was learning it kind of almost at baby level, like the children, I was kind of learning it at the same level as they were. I did pick up stuff like I became very proficient very quickly. I think I had to in some ways. It was survival because nobody spoke English around me until I met a daughter of the Siemens family who was around my age and her grandparents lived in the house next door to the house I was au pairing in. And she was from London, but she had fabulous German, but she was also great crack and she was English and we had we had the fun together. Really good fun. I think it's uh, quite a feat uh, to, to have managed to have learned German that way by absorption or immersion or something like that. Will you have a crack at reading some then? So some German. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read a bit from Dörte Hansen's amazing book, uh, Altus Land, um, is the German title. And This House is Mine is the English title. And I interviewed Dörte for the 
Goethe Institute. It was the European Book Club and the Goethe Institute hosted the April session and she was ama- she's just an amazing writer I love this book I read it in German took me a few weeks but I just loved the rhythm of it so I'm going to hopefully do it justice and she won't mind if my pronunciation's a bit off here and there As im September die Äpfel reif wurden saß Karl immer noch auf Ides weißer Bank und rauchte schöner runder Ringer blies er in die goldene Krone der Linde und an der Spitze der Flückerkolonne, die sich Korb für Korb durch die Apfelbaumreihen arbeitete, stand Hildegard vom Kamke. Aus Preußen sei sie ja ganz andere Flächen gewöhnt, hatte sie gesagt. Und Ida hatte wieder einmal große Lust gehabt, das hochmütige Weib stande Peter vom Hauf zu jagen. Aber sie konnte nicht auf sie verzichten. Sie biss sich die Zähne aus an dieser schmalen Frau, die sich früh morgens auf das Fahrrad schwang wie auf ein Reitpferd und in tadelloser Haltung zum Melken fuhr. Die im Obsthof schuftete, bis der letzte Apfel vom Baum war, die im Stall die Forke schwang wie ein Kerl und dabei Mozart-Arien sang, was die Kühe nicht beeindruckte. Aber Karl auf seiner Bank gefiel es sehr. Und Ida, die nicht geweint hatte, seit ihr Friedrich vor acht Jahren leblos wie ein Kreuz in Entwasserungsgraben trieb, stand am Küchenfenster und heulte, weil sie sah, wie Karl unter der Linde saß und lauschte. »Fühlst du nicht, der liebe Sehnen?« sang Hildegard von Kamke und dachte dabei wohl an einen anderen, der tot war. Und sie wusste so gut wie Ida, dass da draußen auf der Bank nicht mehr der Karl saß, auf den die Mutter jahrelang gewartet hatte. Ihr Hoferbe Karl Eckhoff, stark und hoffnungsvoll, war im Krieg geblieben. Einen Pappkameraden hatten sie ihr zurückgebracht. Freundlich und fremd wie ein Reisender saß ihr Sohn auf der Hochzeitsbank und schichte Rauchringe in den Himmel. Und in den Nächten schrie er. Wunderschön. Toll gelesen. Oh, danke. Ich habe versucht. <lacht> ja, also I'm, yeah. I'm clearly not the expert either on, on my German pronunciation either. <lacht> I often find when I when I think I've got it and I think I, I have the right sound like a German and you just give yourself away with a couple of words or a couple of phrases, you just don't quite get it right. I don't think it's ever possible, really. I have several French friends and, you know, some of them, their accents are brilliant, but they, they never cling in yeah. like a native speaker. Yeah. And I think that's just unless you're bilingual and unless you're bilingual and you grow up listening to the right parents speaking the right language. Because I did meet a family in Germany when I was on my tour after my au pairing and the father was German and spoke English with the children and the mother was English and spoke German with the children. Wow, also, that's... wenn sie auf Deutsch spr- sprach, haben sie so gesprochen. Oh. And it was just like, it was the worst. And then they had this really kind of German accent when they were speaking. It was just like, what not to do with your children. Like they're, yeah, um, yeah. you know, they had the grammar. They were fluent in some ways, but they're out. There's a little bit of speckled people in yeah, there or something, isn't totally. there? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so speckled that yeah. they're like. <laughs> I remember learning German in Munich. I was going to classes and a lot of the people were from Eastern Europe. So I got friendly with some Poles 
notes. And of course, the only common language we had was German, which was great for me because we yeah. had to speak German. But I only heard Poles speaking German. Yeah. And yeah. some of my pronunciation was straight off what they said. Yeah. And I yeah. used to say uh, Meglik for Meglik. Yeah, yeah. And, Meglik, and people would yeah. say, this is Meglik. What do you sound yeah. like? But it did kind of help because I didn't give away straight away that I was an English speaker. Yeah. So yeah. people would allow me to speak German and answer me in German more so. Because yeah. once they catch that you're an English speaker, they'll help you out by yeah. speaking English. Which, which is a horrible feeling, isn't it? I mean, I would prefer to be a little bit lost and struggling. And if yeah. I want to be helped, that it's on my terms, yeah. not because some lovely kind of millennial girl in a, in a very cool Berlin knipe has decided I'm really, she must speak English with me. I just feel so like, oh, come on. Or sometimes even someone picks up your accent and knows where you're from and then in very poor English says, if with, I can help you when yeah. you go... V- for where with the place and you go what are you doing that for yeah how's that helping me yeah it's an over keenness or something to show you that they have English and to 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 be helpful I suppose too. yeah and I suppose it, it becomes a little bit of a battleground like who's going to are you going to have a language off then so you're yeah. going to keep speaking your German getting like getting more and more stressed and then the pronunciation's getting totally fucked up the grammar's <laughs> getting rubbish or are they going to um, are they hoping that they'll just give in so I think it is a weird sort of etiquette like I'm after interviewing Dörte like I read the book no problem I could understand her and um, Oya Demirci fantastic librarian our head of library services in the Goethe Institute and the new director of, of the Goethe Institute like I could hear understand the three of them who have all completely different dialects I could understand them. But when I started speaking, I was like, just, it was like the self-consciousness had come in. Yeah. Whereas like with with a beer, with a beer, I'm like, you know, something happens and it's like grand. Yeah, I don't know if Oya allows beer drinking in the library. No, definitely not. (laughs) But but, but yeah, there's some sort of the self-consciousness, how how that can get in the way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You just kind of need to get beyond that. Yeah. Overthinking it and and checking yourself in in your head as you're just saying ordinary things to wonder, is that what gender is that or yeah, is it yeah. auf der Tische auf yeah. Tisch and you go, oh no it's terrible it's just a tish it's just, just a tish yeah. I'm a tish it, doesn't yeah. matter yeah. <laughs> I noticed there when you're when you're reading you are performing a bit too because that's also your background yeah. So when you were acting, you did more acting before you were a writer. Have I got that? Yeah, I, I sort of have a bit of a lasagna of a career in that I always wrote and then, but I always wanted to be an actor. So um, like that was my dream was to be an actor, but I always wrote. So I did, did never thought of, I want to be a writer. And after I left college, I performed a bit with a theatre company and then I, but I decided it was probably, I really wanted to make films, but it was just, there was so many barriers to entry. And then in the mid-90s, 10 days after Lisa died, a friend of mine, Helen Casey, invited me to take part in a show she was producing, which was Brecht's Fear and Misery of the, the Third Reich. I think it's Furcht und Elend, the Drittes Reiches or something like that. So she wanted me to play the part of the Jewish wife who leaves Köln in 1936 getting out before the show gets really underway. So it was a very interesting piece to do. So then from 96, basically till about 2001, I was focusing on performance, on doing auditions, getting gigs, all that. And you weren't selected for that part because you are of German background, were you? Helen and myself had been in DCU. She was doing languages and marketing and I did communications. It was NIHG back then, which just, you know, that's my vintage. But um, she knew I had German and she knew I had a German 
heritage. So that would have played some part, I think. But but it was more as well. We'd been in the drum sock together. I'd done a kind of big sort of version of Animal Farm, musical version of Animal Farm. And Helen had been one of the hens in it. And then Helen had directed Dario Fo's Accidental Death of an Anarchist. She was always really interested in political theatre. And actually, we performed that, the Dario Fo, in Belfast during the week that those two soldiers were attacked at the funeral. So Helen knew I was interested in political theatre and we knew each other. And she was back in Dublin, having been down in Cork. So it was the mid 90s. People were starting to come back to Dublin. So that was kind of that's very long. Sorry, very long winded (laughs) answer to your simple question. When you were acting Brecht, was that a challenge? Was that something or was that like a really dream to get a chance to do that? Did you have to do it in in Brechtian epic uh, style? Oh, yeah. Uh, It wasn't a dream. I'd studied Brecht in in college because we did a module on the 1920s and German Expressionism and the Bauhaus and all those political artists of that time. So I thought, oh, this is an interesting experiment. But also, again, very much about family for me. Oh, this is an opportunity to connect with something, my grief about Lisa's death and somehow a way to process that or understand it or place it in a bigger context. Helen made some interesting choices so she had the audience on two sides facing each other so it's clear you know this isn't an invisible wall we are in a play. She had a poet who would come up and read poetry she had video footage that she'd sourced which I think had been some of it had been shot by Leni Riefenstahl colour film footage from the 1930s of some big event, some big parade with the, all the Nazis there. So she was using things to punctuate. Um, the Jewish wife is a really beautiful scene, actually. I don't know, like maybe Helen chose me because I was, maybe I brought a kind of, I hate to use the word intellectual, but maybe I brought a sort of cerebral aspect to to the character but I found it very emotional I found I became very emotional playing that part and it became a very for me a very tender and a very intimate performance Um, so was that Brechtian would Brecht have approved I don't know we did another show, Brecht show, a few years after that called The Mother and that was very much the epic style with loads of singing and declaiming and we shall not go on strike we shall go on strike sort of thing Do you know, um, would there have been any Nazi sympathisers in some of your family? I know my my grandmother and my great aunt, my grandmother said, you know, when he was, we just thought of him as a buffoon. So they would have been sort of the educated bourgeoisie. So it's like, oh, this little, a bit maybe how people thought of Trump. So I found the last four or five years really stressful, like Trump or Bolsonaro or Boris Johnson. Oh, he's just a buffoon. So I think there was a sense of them being... I don't know how liberal they were. I mean, my great aunt met Marlene Dietrich once, so I don't know. Does that make her liberal? But they would have been. <laughs> but they would have been educated. They would have been cultured. So they would certainly wouldn't have thought much of him during the war. Like my grandmother did pray for for Germany and Hitler, not because she was supporting the Shoah and uh, the genocide that the the Nazis were engaged in. But it was like a patriotism. And we did find, after her death, we did find this little little badge with a, with a Nazi sign on it. But I don't think she was a member of the party or anything. And she was very young when she left Germany. But she does remember telling us when she voted and um, it was the, the election Hitler came to power. Like she was in this little cubicle and there was a curtain around her and there was a pair of black boots pointing in on one side and a pair 
brown boots, very like the Brecht piece from Fear and Misery, it's the chalk cross. So essentially she was like, well, if I vote anything other than the Nazis, are these two guys going to follow me home? Are they going to rough me up? Are they going to attack me? Are they going to attack my family? So she felt she didn't have a choice. She didn't have a democratic choice. She wasn't sure. So when I'm I'm watching The Handmaid's Tale at the moment, so I imagine it was like that. You're faced with these terrible Hobson's choices. But people didn't have the same internet. They didn't have the same awareness. And I know there's an argument, did German people not want to know? You know, that's often, did they not want to know what happened? And I don't know, I don't know, would I have been any more courageous? It's Essentially, that's what I have to come back to because I don't know what my grandmother or my great aunt would have gone through. I've met a lot of Germans and I, I think they do feel that back at that generation there was some of them who were more like inadvertently fell in step or didn't want to be openly rebelling against them because it wasn't an easy thing to do but in some way that they still felt a kind of level of guilt because they didn't do enough to stop it even though they weren't supporters at all. So yeah. I suppose there was quite a lot of that. Like you say, the way you kind of laugh off Trump or Bolsonaro or some of those people as if they're not really going to go anywhere anyway. But in some ways, you're not really sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's like that kind of complicity with something oppressive and with something very, very damaging and cruel. The Jewish writer, he was a doctor, Victor Mandel, I think, and he talked about how he was such a brilliant German, you know, essentially had his bags packed because he was such a good German. I mean, and that's just heartbreaking. This was this amazing Jewish man who then oh yeah okay I'll go to my and he talked about the, the, the German Jews being their problem was they were too German Did your um, your grandmother's family come from the old East Prussia the kind of yeah. those lands yeah Yeah so my and that's probably part of what I love about Altus Land my great grandmother Margareta who was a printmaker and studied with Munch she came from Poznan which is now in Poland but they were ethnically German as far as I know so even though I've never been to Poland I'd love to go to Poland and every time I hear somebody Polish speaking I get a real flutter of excitement I feel a real connection there even though I've never been yeah. to Poland I think there are lots of tours that lots of German people go back to see their old kind of homeland but I don't think in any fervently nationalistic way but just in a kind of sentimental way yeah. and they run bus tours and there's some frowning at the Germans who would go back to the old East Prussia places for visits but I get the impression from what I've been told by Poles and stuff well they're kind of very welcome because there are pensioners coming to spend money yeah. and walk around the old towns and say oh look I remember this remember that but yeah. it's only a kind of a, a sentimental nostalgia kind of tours it's not anything more than that yeah, which is, and Dörte well. has a brilliant passage in this book of uh, where Marlene goes back and she's the daughter of Hildegard von Kamke, who's the East Prussian noblewoman. And Marlene is the second daughter and she goes back to East Prussia to look at the old homeland. I mean, my Margareta would have come over from Poznan before the turn of the century. So my old homeland would be Varnamunda and the house on Strandweg which was seized by the state after my great aunt died. And can, you, which can you claim it now? Can you can you claim back the properties after the demise of the DDR? Yeah, my, my dad and my uncle, I think they thought about it but they just felt it would be kind of unfair and and also like for the hassle and if somebody's living there and why would you do it really? But also we had nice memories of being there and I think memories are are so important. It wasn't like the fluke where they had to leave, like my grandmother chose to come to Ireland. She chose to leave her family behind, which was an incredible Mm -hmm. thing to do, you know, age 21. 
to leave everything you knew and settle in a very different country. And I do wonder, I mean, I never really asked her about that, but I do wonder if she ever felt guilty at having, you know, left her mother and her 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 sister. Her sister was much older than her, but or, or, or whether it was just something, look, you know, you do, you make the choices you make and you just get on with it. I suppose with that amount of history there when the Red Army came in afterwards and all that and then into the whole DDR world, I mean, maybe Ireland was such a simple place to escape to. Yeah, and it wasn't like she holed up in the back of beyond. She was in Waterford, which was quite a sophisticated, it was a huge port town at the time. They were very much part of that kind of you know, well-heeled, middle class. She was very good friends with the Batchicks. And then there was a family called the Kniesels who came over from Dresden after the war. So she and Mariana Kniesel, they set up a jeweller's shop in Waterford. So there was a kind of strong cosmopolitan culture in Waterford. And my dad always, like when he looks at, say, you know, Song for a Raggy Boy or all those 1950s with the lads going around in the short trousers, he's, he doesn't identify with it because his understanding is much more, well, I know Nora Webster by Column told been is a bit later but it's very much listening you listen to classical music it's cosmopolitan it's sophisticated you know so I can't sorry I can't remember your question I'm just I'm just back in that time about about 20 minutes ago I was going to ask you uh, what was it like moving from acting to writing (laughs) (laughs) but I I don't quite know if if we started to answer that does having a background in acting and being a performer help you write? I think it does and I think I had to go through the whole thing of acting. I did quite a lot of acting work but I was never like household name, never, you know, got loads of TV jobs or anything like that. But what I think it helped me do was understand characters from the inside out. I'd always been able to write and I I was always good at school and good at English but I don't think those things necessarily make for a very good writer because writing is it's an act of empathy I think first and foremost not every writer will, will would agree with me on that so for me I could write sentences that sounded lovely and certainly everything was nice nice writing and I had good ideas but it was only from acting and failing at acting more often that I succeeded at it and learning. I was like, did loads of workshops and I was constantly learning and constantly seeing my own limits. And I think that really helped set me up to become a writer. So I actually did have to become a writer. I, I didn't think I, I, I had to become a writer because I always wrote. But it's like, it's the and the act of emotional identification, being able to write from the body out. Also understanding stuff like dramatic tension subtext um, what the characters the character might be doing something but they may be feeling and thinking something else and underneath what they're consciously feeling and thinking there might be something else yet again and I'm really interested in the layers of consciousness and unconsciousness and how trauma and buried memories and the scripts that people internalise how these play out and kind of push them into behaving in odd ways and self-destructive ways, you know, that really interests me. And I think I wouldn't be able to write those things in a way that that interests me as much as it does if I hadn't had the experience of acting. I think I learned so much from those years performing, really did. Do you think of your reader, do you want the reader to be entertained? Do you want the reader to have a nice time when they're reading it or do you want to have a more deeper impact on your reader? Yeah, it's a great question. I do think about how this will land with people. 
I'm my first reader, so I really want them to be interested, you know, essentially, and for it to be fun and pleasurable, but also perhaps maybe that it jars a little bit and that it creates a bit of a chink and a kind of maybe discomfort. Like, I don't think that's bad necessarily. And I guess when I'm writing, I'm just trying to get it down. And then like the horrible stage of trying to figure out what on earth am I writing? Like that's that that can last years. Like the book I'm working on now, it's years and years I'm trying to figure out what am I writing? I have a load of words. It looks like a book. It's the length of a book. It's got a beginning, middle and end. What is it? I still don't know. And I have to work away at it until I can figure that out. But then my, my gauge will be, am I interested in this chapter? Am I interested in it? Is, is there something that's not working? What is that? And it's usually never, oh, that sentence isn't beautifully written enough. It's usually there's something I'm missing. I'm missing something about the character. There's something they're hiding from me that I'm too thick to see and I'm too too thick to ask the right question. You know, so it's a it can be <laughs> it can be a bit of a struggle actually. Even though I write material quickly, I make books very slowly. Let me jump back entirely to a different question. When it comes to identity and having that sense of a, a different identity and having that um, having German as another language. You think that makes you relate differently to the Irish language and your Irishness in that sense? Oh yeah, God. I mean, I hated doing Irish in school. Well, first of all, I had a very traumatic experience when I was four. It's all coming out now. Um, but I, my first week in school, I went to Skullbreda in Ranla. It was around the corner from where my parents lived. And the teacher there was Maura Gagan Quinn, who went on to be a minister. And I had no Irish but it was a Gwail skull. So I had no idea what anybody was saying. So she called me a dunce pretty early on and made me stand in the corner. And then we had a day with a stage, which should have been my dream to be on a stage, but we were to do Irish dancing and I hadn't a clue. And I remember standing there like stuck, like a statue frozen. And I started to cry and she just jeered me and said, look at the crybaby there who can't do the Irish dancing. So that slightly tainted my relationship with the Irish language. And then, you know, I like patterns and rules. So some of the progress in Irish, which was the green book that we learned Irish from, like grammar was interesting. And in fact, I think the Irish language with all its declensions and weird tenses helped me when I was starting to learn German because I had a teach yourself German book so I could see the declensions and the conjugations. Yeah, me too. You get you get yeah. a bit more accepting of yeah. the complicated levels of it, don't you? Yeah, yeah totally. Mm. But I got very frustrated with Irish. I had all right Irish. I mean, I think I got a B or something in honour. So it was, I was, I mean, I'm, I probably have a facility for language but I remember getting so frustrated and one day in class we were studying Porig O'Connor's brilliant scale to the short stories and he had a story about Salome and Herod and Herodias and I just wanted to discuss it the way I would an English text but I didn't have the language and I kept slipping into English and the teacher going no you have to speak in Irish and I was like so what do I feel about Irish I mean I don't have a huge grow for Irish I wouldn't have a huge inclination to maybe study it but I do like the boldness of maybe being in England and you know rabbiting in very bad Irish to another Irish friend and knowing nobody's going to understand me. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine is Russo Snuddy from Keela. I love how he speaks about Irish. I love the passion when he talks about Irish and the how essential it is. And uh, yeah, and I could see like maybe I'm a bit disinherited. Paula Meehan talks about, you know, that mother tongue being taken away. Like I'm probably cut off. 
But because I have the German and other languages, I guess I don't really mind. I'm not that bothered as Vicky mm. Paul. I'm not that bothered about Irish. But I think it's important. I think it's very important to keep it alive. And I would say that. To jump again, I suppose, in terms of recommendations, and we'll add the recommendations kind of to the to the podcast so people can click on links and find the stuff. But uh, are there things that you'd like to recommend? I mean, German writers or yeah. German film or something, or, or not necessarily German. Yeah, yeah. Are things you'd like to recommend? Yeah, there are two German films. I mean, everybody's seen Untergang, the, the downfall, the one with Bruno Gantz. I won't recommend that because everybody's probably seen it. And with all the memes of um, uh, with Bruno Gantz playing Hitler. I saw a beautiful film that had been out a good, good while before, but I only saw it maybe two years ago called Laura, which is about this young girl who moves her dad as a high up, um, ranking Nazi official and it's set just after the war so my second novel Beautiful Pictures of the Lost Homeland deals with the Flucht so I was really interested in anything to do with that big exodus of German speaking people that happened after the war which is sort of had been really not spoken about for, for many decades. So Laura and her family, her little brother, I think she's two little brothers, leave their house and I think it's in I think it's in Bayern, it's in Bavaria and they go all the way up to the North Sea and they have these awful experiences en route but it was a really brilliant novel and then there's a couple more, there's the one of um, Sophie Scholl about the resistance, German resistance student Sophie Scholl and her brother which I thought was so moving and beautiful and then the white ribbon Michael Haneke's which I just think is the most extraordinary film with this strange atmosphere. It kind of put me in mind of Thomas Mann, but the very kind of almost doom filled Duende atmosphere. Something's happening. Something's up in this beautiful town. Again, in North, in North, uh, uh, near the North Sea, so close to where uh, Lisa would have grown up. But it's uh, antebellum, so it's before the First World War. It's like it's a metaphor, but everything is so subtle and under the surface that when I was watching it, I was almost listening for the meaning, not in the language, but listening for what meaning was happening underneath what I was seeing. Absolutely just a majestic film. I watched Dark last year on Netflix, which was fantastic. I skipped out failure in the Matrix, uh, which was just absolutely brilliant. And I want to watch it again. And I, the last season I watched without subtitles to see if I could. Um, so the time travelling, part of it set in 1984. So I loved it. But also the Deutschland series. So Deutschland 83, And I'm just started to watch 89. And again, it's just my time. It's the 80s and really great performance and uh, your man who plays Martin Colibri I love him and then a lot of good books yeah Dorothea's book is fantastic I was used to do this brilliant course that the Goethe Institute used to do on Thursday evenings with Marlies Maguire the literature class yes fantastic fantastic course there was one year where we were looking at Austrian writers and we read a really brilliant book called As Gate Unts Good by Arno Geiger and in fact the structure of that I stole from when I was writing my second novel 
um, beautiful pictures. So he had a, a structure that shifted between present and the past. And there were very long chapters in the past and very short chapters in the present. So I just stole liberally from that. I thought it was brilliant. And that brings us back magically uh, to your own writing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we do need to wrap up. So we'll go out with you reading a piece. OK, yeah. great. So, yeah, it was a pleasure to have your company. Oh, Kieran, I, I really love it. It was and, just uh, great. Thank you so much. We'll have to come back for another few hours because I think there's <laughs> a lot of stuff we didn't hardly get to yet. Yeah. So um, that's all then. Um, vielen Dank und auf Wiedersehen. Oh, bitte sehr. So I'm going to read from my second book, Beautiful Pictures of the Lost Homeland. So this is a slightly longer piece. It's about three minutes long and it's set in a pub in November 1976. And the main character is Lotte, who's Anglo-German. And she finds herself in this Dublin pub with her kind of bit on the side, lover would be too strong a word, who she calls the poet she doesn't know his name. Actually, she heard some other airier part of her say, I'm not. Her voice was surprisingly steady. I'm not Welsh. The poet's head jerked towards her. I'm from Bristol. Uh, What's that word, poet? Sassenach. Christie snorted into his pint. Interesting city, Bristol. Hometown of Strongbow, I believe. She lifted her glass, without whom my Saxon ancestors may never have invaded this lovely little island of yours, Slauncha. A collective intaking of breath. Funny that, nobody corrected her, said, You know, Lotte, it wasn't the Saxons, it was the Normans. Jesus, Evans, said the poet, just how long had he been working for a newspaper? Oh, don't get your knickers into a twist, poet, she said. I'm not a proper English, no more than Christie here, she nodded in his direction. Knows the least fucking thing about revolution. Something brutish coiled in Christie's shoulders. Ah, she thought, it's coming. And that dead part of her wouldn't have been disappointed if he'd hit her. But instead, the dark man laughed, suddenly revealing strong white teeth. Lotte, he said. Deutsch oder? Christie looked puzzled. Rota arme faction, said the northern man. Fraction, du idiot, she almost said. But the poet interrupted. Jesus, quiet, will you? The music's starting. She could see the anger flickering in his face and underneath it something raw and uncertain but that was a fucking liberty because if anyone deserved to be angry it was her. And then the music started up and people hushed and soon even Christy lost interest in her and began enthusiastically thumping the back of the man next to him and she drank the Guinness and the next chaser the poet gave her avoiding his eyes and the eyes of the dark man and swallowed the next pint and chaser after that and gathered without really listening that the poet's friends apart from the northerner were boys he'd met in the wild dead years after he'd left school and failed to get into art college. Three times he'd applied and been refused. Too thick to get the message. Too bloody minded. Too full of notions of his own bloody genius. Kept pestering the papers and the magazines though and now some uncle who was a subby had pulled a few strings and she had only herself to blame. She had seen the books. What had she thought she was playing at to put her head in the lion's den like that? And they all drank another round and somebody said something about how hot the weather would be in Belfast and they all laughed and slapped the poet on his back and told him now Owen you show the Brits you show the fat cats you show the mower suits in Kildare Street show it like it is Owen show everyone on this poxy island what's really going on them orange pricks with their property and their profits and their proletariat fooling lodges and no Catholics need apply those be special bollockses them trigger happy para bastards those warmongering imperial 
fuckers in Whitehall, damn murdering cunts. You show them what the martyrs of 1916 died for, what the people on the streets of Derry were gunned down for. You name it as it is, shouted the northern man, anointing the poet's forehead with whiskey. For you are Owen Boshta, John the Baptist. Owen the Marxist, shouted Christie. Blessed Owen, roared another. And Lottie thought of the music he played when they fucked, the soundtrack to their own rocking and rolling, his blues and Chuck Berry and Bowie and Velvet Underground, and the weirder brasher sounds with screeching guitars and yowling voices preaching anarchy in the UK that belonged to some new thing called punk happening in England and New York and wondered what on earth that had to do with this. These fiddles and drums, these beards and oily jumpers and what Belfast had to do with him or anything, especially her. After the next whiskey, everything got too hazy to remember.